Revelation 8, if you've got your Bible tonight. Revelation 8. I do appreciate Mark emphasizing our prayer conference also coming up in February. We've got a lot of good things on the horizon. And, you know, in a very difficult season of life, as these last two years have been, uh, you know, it's all the more important that we do all we can to make disciples and to uh, uh, stretch ourselves, stretch our faith muscles. And I can't think of anything more important in, the, in that area than the discipline of prayer. And so I hope you'll participate in that come February. Uh, but Revelation chapter 8 is where we'll be tonight. If you're here tonight, you're a very, uh, maybe a first-time guest. We're glad you're joining us. But I've been in a study through Revelation that we began back in August. And so our studies brought us to chapter 8. And we'll get into that in just a moment. But I'm sure that you'll agree with me that the Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah is arguably the most moving musical composition that has ever been written. I read somewhere that whenever it premiered in London, it's London premiere, it was the year 1743, King George II was seated in his box as the first strains of the chorus began. And it said that he was so deeply moved that he rose to his feet and stood for the remainder of the performance. Well, the rest of the audience that were there that night, they saw that the king was standing. The audience also rose to its feet, and it's a tradition which remains to this day. Even now, when the Hallelujah Chorus is played, what do we do? But we all stand to our feet and stand at attention. But I know that you're familiar with that chorus and the way that it goes. After wave after wave of hallelujahs are echoed, it brings you to the crescendo when the music finally stops there at the end and there's a pause and there's a silent sense of anticipation because you know that there's one final hallelujah. <laughs> the eighth chapter of Revelation sort of brings us to that kind of moment. In fact, the pause in the hallelujah chorus George Frederick Handel took his inspiration from the 8th chapter of Revelation when he built in that pause at the very end of that chorus. Because as Revelation chapter 8 begins, the scripture says that the lamb, he takes and opens the seventh seal and there's silence in heaven for about half an hour. And that silence is the silence of heaven in all preparation for the judgment of God that is associated with the seven trumpet judgments, which we begin reading about here in this eighth chapter and on into chapter number nine. Now, just to give you a brief review, um, we've seen how Revelation, the book itself, began with a greeting from the Apostle John. He's in exile on Patmos. Chapter 1 presents us with a vision of the Lord Jesus who's walking among the seven churches. Chapters 2 and 3 make up seven letters which are addressed to those seven churches, which were seven literal churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. 
Chapter 4, John is taken in the spirit to the throne room of heaven itself, and he's shown God's ultimate plan for the consummation of human history. And really, chapters 4 and 5 are one vision that is made up of two different parts. Chapter 4 focuses on God the Father, and the emphasis is on him as the sovereign Lord over creation. Chapter 5 focuses on God the Son, and the emphasis there is on the Lamb who is worthy, worthy to take the scroll, which is symbolic of the title deed to the earth. Only the Lamb was worthy to begin opening the seals on that scroll and unfolding the redemptive plan for the consummation, the end of the age. And so really when you take these two visions together of chapter 4, chapter 5, the message is that by means of creation and redemption, God has the right to this earth to do what he wills, to do with the inhabitants of earth whatever he pleases. He's God (laughs) and he's sovereign over all things. Well, then in chapter 6, the seal judgments... The lamb begins opening the seals of that scroll, the seal judgments. There are seven of these. Uh, They mark the beginning of the tribulation period. As the first four seals are opened, you have the four horsemen of the apocalypse that are described there in that chapter. And so the tribulation period is described really from chapter 6 all the way up to chapter 19, with the exception of some interlude passages where there's a break in the action. And if you remember, I sort of gave you this little chart to kind of tell you how the sequence, the flow of events goes there throughout the book of Revelation from chapter 6 all the way really through chapter 19 or chapter 20. So chapter 7 really presents us with the first of these interlude passages. And we saw that. We looked at that. You have the 144,000 of Israel who were sealed. Uh, They're described in the first eight verses of chapter 7. This is proof that God's not through with the nation of Israel. And these 144,000 hold to the view that they are uh, evangelists who come to faith in Jesus Christ. God raises up to be witnesses during that tribulation period. Then at the end of uh, chapter 7, you have really a vast multitude made up of every nation, every tribe, every tongue, a multitude of people gathered around the throne with palm branches. They're they're clothed in white robes. Uh, They've cleansed their robes, washed them white in the blood of the Lamb. And the idea is there's a direct correlation between the 144,000 of Israel and this innumerable multitude and the relationship is these are the fruit it's the fruit of their witness those who come to faith in Jesus during the tribulation period even though it's going to be a period of terrible judgment on earth and I believe that the church will have been raptured prior to that there are going to be people who are saved and who come to faith in the Lord Jesus during the tribulation period in fact keep in mind that the tribulation is also known as Daniel's 70th week, outlined in the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel. And really the whole purpose of it is the salvation of Israel. Israel's going to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as her Messiah. 
It's the time of Jacob's trouble. And when Christ appears, they're going to look upon the one whom they've pierced and they're going to mourn for him as one would mourn for an only son. And so that is the purpose of it. So that brings us then to this eighth chapter where the main action resumes. Notice as the lamb opens the seventh and final seal judgment. And it's this opening of the seventh seal judgment which contains the seven trumpet judgments. So notice there, Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, the scripture says, when the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and notice John says that seven trumpets were given to them. So in the next couple of chapters, you have the events associated with those seven trumpet judgments. And eventually, when we get to the seventh trumpet judgment, you'll notice that the seventh trumpet announces the seven bowl judgments. So what you have here, really with the opening of the seven seals, leading to the seven trumpet judgments, ultimately culminating in the seven bowl judgments, this is an intensification of judgment, bringing us all the way to the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ himself in chapter 19 when he splits the eastern sky and when he comes, the battle of Armageddon. So just by way of introduction, uh, every act of judgment in redemptive history, and you read the Bible and you read many of these, I think about the flood in, in the Genesis narrative, I think about the exodus and the judgments that were poured out upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians in the Exodus. Or, you know, prior to that, you've got the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Every act of judgment in redemptive history really is just a preview of things to come. Just as every redemptive act foreshadows God's mercy in Christ, so also does every retributive act foreshadow God's judgment that's still to come at the return of Christ. And so again, you think about judgment in history, how the Lord unleashed his righteous wrath upon the sin of man in Noah's generation or the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. You've got the Egyptians, to mention them again. All of these are examples of God's judgment that ultimately point to a final worldwide judgment that will be poured out during the tribulation period. Chuck Swindoll says this, he says, we human beings are a stubborn bunch of people. Amen. You say, I take offense at that. No, you resemble that. Let me just tell you right now. I do too. Spiritual blindness, self-will, and an inborn habit of disobedience all work against the humility and the submission that God desires from us. Believers who should know better have a hard time with this simple directive, trust and obey. And for those who grope around in the darkness and they stumble into ignorance, the situation is even worse. And then Dr. Swindoll asks this question. He says, how can a righteous redeemer grab the attention of a wicked world? How did you grab the attention of your kids when they were growing up? I'll tell you, my daddy grabbed my attention. It wasn't with a lullaby, hush little baby, don't say a word. No, 
He knew how to take the board of discipline and apply it to the seat of understanding, if you get my drift. The answer to that question, how does God get the attention of the world? The answer is pain. It's through judgment and the pain of judgment that God gets man's attention. C.S. Lewis said that pain insists upon being attended to. He said God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. He says that God's megaphone is pain that he uses to rouse a deafened world. And so one of the things really that history reveals is the harder that man's heart becomes, the more intense that God's judgment grows. The more that man hardens his heart against God, the more intense God's judgment grows. Now you see this illustrated in the Exodus, do you not? With the plagues of Egypt, as Pharaoh hardened his heart Just because he hardens his heart, does that get him off the hook? Or does God bring him to a breaking point? And what is that breaking point? Well, it's the ultimate pain of losing a firstborn son. It's not the frogs, as bad as those are, or the bloody river Nile, or the darkness. It's the pain of loss, it's judgment. So in Revelation, then, we see God using this intensifying series of judgments to capture the world's attention for the purpose of redemption. Why is judgment a reality? When you read about these judgments that we're going to read about here in chapter 8 and in the coming chapters, as terrifying as they are, listen to me. It's not because God wants to destroy that which he's created. He wants to redeem it. He wants to rescue it. And that's what he's done in the person of his son, Jesus. He's, he's interested in redemption and salvation, but he has to judge man's sin. And so what you're going to see happen, happen in Revelation, literally the elements, the elements of the created order are going to begin to unravel as God unravels the world that he made so that he can make it again. <laughs> There's nothing more attention-grabbing to me than a trumpet blast. There's something about the blast of a trumpet that would draw our attention, that would would, um, cause my ear to perk up, that would cause my mind to stand at attention. And so John says here that he sees seven angels who will sound a series of trumpets. This is when the lamb has broken open that seventh seal. Now that trumpet, the trumpets that are spoken of, this refers to an instrument that was used to sound an alarm or call to arms. And so when these trumpets are used here, the emphasis is it's more of a military usage of these trumpets than it is a musical usage. And the book of Revelation is not the only place in the Bible where trumpets are spoken of to announce judgment. You see this in the Old Testament too. Uh, Isaiah chapter 27 says, so it shall be in that day, the great trumpet will be blown. Joel chapter two, blow the trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm in my holy mountain. 
And so trumpet blasts are associated with this coming day of the Lord, a coming time of judgment that will occur during the tribulation period. And really it will be a storm of divine judgment that's unleashed on an unbelieving and rebellious world. So think of this as storm warning. You know the difference between a a weather watch versus a weather warning, don't you? A winter storm watch means that the conditions are favorable. It seems like there's a storm that's building on the horizon. We just don't know what it's going to do. Whenever that winter storm warning is issued, you know that it's about to go down. A tornado watch means that the conditions are favorable for tornadoes to form. A tornado warning, you better find an interior room in your house because that bad boy is about to bear down where you live. Hurricane watch, hurricane warning, same principle. <laughs> it's interesting to me, you know, you get a you, you pretty, when there's a hurricane warning issued for your area, you know, you've had about a week to prepare for it. <laughs> I heard one person say, you know, it's the difference between the hurricanes and tornadoes. You don't have 25 seconds with the tornado warning a lot of times, but a hurricane warning, you got a whole week. And we just sit there and wait on it. Right? Well, this storm warning that we see here in Revelation, this is judgment. This is, this is the crescendo of history. This is the consummation of history. This is judgment bearing down upon man's rebellious world. All right, so notice a few things about this. Notice, number one, it involves the preparation for judgment. Because really what you see there in verses one and two, it's, it's preparation. The silence of heaven that's spoken of in verse 1, this is, this is preparation for what's about to come. Up until this point in John's visions, there have been sounds. Sounds of worship, singing around the throne, shouting around the throne, anthems of praise before the throne of God as innumerable multitudes of angels and raptured saints are declaring the majesty and the worth of the Lamb. There's a sa- Could you imagine what the sounds of heaven are going to be like? can't even begin to imagine or describe what the sounds of heaven are going to be like. And I think about worship and the sounds associated with worship now. But you know, when God shows up in power, it's interesting to me, it's not so much shouting and singing and jumping pews that happen. We get silent. There's a holy hush that falls upon a man or a woman or a congregation when God really shows up in power. I think one of the things wrong with our generation is we don't know how to value silence. (laughs) That was awkward, wasn't it? (laughs) There's something about silence, though, that just gets your attention. So what is it, how important is what's about to come when heaven is silent? When the angels are silent, when the saints gathered round the throne are silent. So this is the calm before the storm. I don't know if you ever lived through a tornado, but you know it's a very eerie thing. Often before the winds get so fierce, it's almost as if it gets so still outside, not even a breeze, not even a leaf moving in the trees. But then all of a sudden when the storm comes, it's like, 
it's just a whirling vortex of wind that's destructive, that's, that will demolish anything in its path. So when God prepares to intensify his wrath here, every creature in heaven is brought to a holy hush. Now this is not, this is not, and I told you so. They're not laughing. There's not chatter of some kind of, you know, removed ecstasy, that kind of thing. It's silent in heaven. And why is that? Well, I think the answer is because silence is the only proper response to what's coming. The judgment of God. This is no laughing matter. This is no shouting matter. This is no frivolous matter. This is a serious thing. You think about the, val the value of silence in your own life. You ever felt like you wanted to defend yourself whenever you felt unfairly attacked? But then after you defended yourself, you even felt worse, didn't you? Because sometimes the best thing we can do is just be quiet. What did Jesus do when he was before the Sanhedrin and before Pilate and there were all these accusations? He was silent. He didn't answer his critic, not a word. Our Lord understands the value of silence. We, we live in a day, everybody's talking, everybody's got something to say, they've got something to tweet, they've got something to put out on social media. We've got to have an opinion on everything. Or so we think. But it could just be that, you know, there's a time and a place for us to be silent. God is in heaven. I am man upon the earth. Therefore, I will let my words be few. So how much more severe the judgment when heaven itself becomes silent? How serious is this? Heaven is silent. Listen to Zephaniah 1 verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Be silent before him. So there's this holy hush, the singing has stopped, the exaltation has stopped, the hallelujahs stop, the music is put on hold. John sees the host of heaven grow silent in preparation of what is about to come. The judgment that's coming is severe. The day of the Lord has come. This is the hour of final judgment. And listen, the world has not been without a sufficient warning because for centuries upon centuries, God's word had served as a prophetic warning of what's coming. The prophets of Israel warned about the day of the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 24 that the time would come when heaven and earth would pass away. Even though his words would remain forever, heaven and earth will pass away. The Apostle Peter said, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be watchful. He said, the time is coming when the elements will melt with fervent heat, which means there's really no excuse for the world once the world gets to this point. This is not God having a temper tantrum. This is not God having a meltdown. No, what this is, this is, this is human history in rebellion. This is sin running its course. This is the consequence of man who wants to run the show, having a head-on collision with what's about to go down. And there have been red lights of warning. There have been warning signs that have been blaring for centuries whether it were the prophets or the apostles or Jesus himself or the early church or the modern church. So this coming storm will take the world by surprise, but it shouldn't because all the warning signs have been there. 
So verse two, John sees these seven angels. They're standing before God. He's watching with interest as they're presented with seven trumpets. And these trumpets are going to begin to blast and it won't be long before the silence is shattered with the sound of a blaring trumpet which is going to be associated with some type of judgment that's going to be poured out on the earth. Now someone says, well, why the silence? Well, it's because of the seriousness of the judgment, but maybe this is just yet one more proof of the patience and the long-suffering of God. Aren't you glad that God's patient and long-suffering? He's patient with me. He's patient with you. But you know what? There comes a point in time when even God's patience wears out. God doesn't deal with man out of his patience, but he deals with man out of the attribute of his judgment. So the preparation then of the judgment. Now, notice then the vindication of the saints. Now, verse 3, let's read it. John says, he sees another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. The angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder and rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So here's what John is seeing in heaven. During this period of silence, this angel approaches the altar, all while holding a golden censer which was full of incense. Now, this imagery would have been familiar to the Jewish mind who is familiar with worship under the old covenant system. Uh, Israel's priests ministered in the temple and they used these kinds of utensils to burn incense. And the burning of incense often is associated with prayer in both the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. David said in Psalm 141, let my prayer be set before you as incense. Uh, in Luke's gospel, you've got Zechariah who's fulfilling his priestly duty when the angel of the Lord appears to him to tell him about the birth of, you know, he's going to have a son and, 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 and that son's going to be the forerunner of Christ himself. Well, what is he doing? He's, he's offering incense, he's a priest and so it was symbolic as the priest would offer incense, he would be praying on behalf of the people and so the rising of that incense was a sweet aroma to God and, and it was symbolic of the prayers of God's people going up to God. And so John is seeing this kind of thing happen in heaven. He's seeing the angel in the temple of heaven offering incense with the prayers of the saints on a golden altar there before the throne of God. And as the smoke of that incense rises together with the prayers of the saints, it rises before God from the hand of the angel. So what you see happening here, this is God savoring and responding to the prayers of his people in his own time. You call to mind the prayer of those martyred saints back in chapter six. They cried out to God, how long, O Lord, Holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long? Lord, do you hear us? Do you see what they're doing? How they're martyring your saints? How they're spurning your truth? 
How long is it going to be before you respond to it? But listen, you know, not one of those prayers were wasted. But every time those prayers were offered up, those prayers were kept in a golden censer. Just as God keeps the tears of his people in his bottle, so also does he store up the prayers of his people that he's going to answer in his own timing. (laughs) Do you ever feel like your prayers have never been answered? Have you ever cried out with the psalmist, how long, O Lord? Has it ever grieved you when you look around and you see the shape of things in society and you're not just angry, but man, you're just deeply burdened with what sin has done and what it's led to. Just this morning, I heard the story in the news, the mama in Atlanta whose six-month-old baby was killed in a drive-by shooting. The bullet went through her vehicle, through the back seat, pierced the infant in its car seat. The infant died. And as I'm listening to that story this morning, I'm asking the question, how long, oh Lord? How long is this kind of thing going to go on? I think we find our answer here in this eighth chapter of Revelation. That there comes a point in time when those prayers are going to be answered and the people of God, the saints of God, those prayers will be vindicated. So this is a great passage on prayer. You know, prayerlessness is a sign of self-sufficiency. Why do we not pray? Well, because it's hard work. (laughs) But a lot of times, let's just be honest, we're just fat and sassy and comfortable. But the moment that the bottom drops out in our life, we experience pain, our world is rocked, Prayer finds us, doesn't it? It's easier to pray when life is tough. Maybe you've prayed for something with a broken heart and you didn't receive an immediate answer. I think all of us have been there at some point. So this vision then that John is given is the answer to those prayers, which means that those prayers are not in vain. The prayers of God's people. Ray Steadman has said there's one prayer that the people of God have been praying throughout the ages of history which has not yet been answered. One prayer that's not yet received an answer, but it will receive an answer. You know what that prayer is? He says, perhaps Adam prayed this prayer as he was forced to leave the Garden of Eden. Maybe Noah even prayed this prayer as he came out of the ark and set foot upon a world washed clean by the waters of the flood. Perhaps Abraham prayed this prayer as he looked for a city yet to come. We know that David prayed this prayer. We find it many times embedded throughout the Psalms. We know that all the apostles, including the apostle Paul, prayed this prayer. It permeates the New Testament. This prayer was taught by Jesus to his disciples. Many churches pray this prayer at some point during every worship service. What is the prayer? The words are these. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is that not our desire as the people of God? We want to see the will of God carried out on earth just as the will of God is perfectly being carried out in heaven. And so we want to see the kingdom come. That's what we long for. There's a sense in which every time a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, they're born again, they're changed from within, Jesus Christ is enthroned within their heart. But the reality of the kingdom, in its physical sense, it's not yet come. 
spiritually, yes, but physically, it will come when the king himself returns to the earth. (laughs) So what you see here then in Revelation 8 and with the blowing of these trumpets and the consummation of history and the culmination of God's redemptive plan, it's the coming of the kingdom. It's the answer of the prayers of God's people, the vindication of God's saints. Let me tell you something. That ought to encourage you if you're praying through something right now and you feel like you've not yet got an answer. God will answer in his own time. Especially if you know that what you're praying for is in keeping with God's perfect will. If it's in keeping with his desire as revealed in Scripture. The Scripture beckons us to pray. Uh, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so at the right time he may exalt you. Cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Are you weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, he's still our refuge. Take your needs to him in prayer. I think if we understood that our prayers ascended before the throne, we would value prayer that much more in our lives, wouldn't we? I mean, we would know who it is that we're calling upon. We caught a glimpse of him on his throne. We're praying to the very one who unrolled the blueprint for the foundation of the world before the dawn of time. We're praying to the very one who called the cosmos out of nothing with his own voice. We're we're praying to the one who set the earth spinning on its axis and keeps it rotating at 1,000 miles per hour. (laughs) Right now, where you're seated, You're spinning on this ball of dirt at a thousand miles per hour around a little old star that God just lit up like a match. You're praying to the one who gave the lion his roar. You're praying to the one who gave the eagle his soar. You're praying to the one who took a lump of clay, fashioned it into a man made in his own image after his own likeness, and then breathed into that man the breath of life. You're praying to the one who robed himself up in flesh. He was born into our world, crucified on a cross to bear our sin, become our sacrifice, who rose from the dead, who's seated in power and glory, and one day is coming again. So listen, pray on. Don't quit. Pray on. Pray on. So this passage should remind me that just because my prayer is not always immediately answered, it doesn't mean that my prayers are wasted. These prayers are not wasted. Now, these trumpets begin to blow. Notice verse 5 says the angel's taking that censer, fills it with fire from the altar, throws it to the earth. So now the, the scene is going to shift from heaven to the earth. And so the trumpets that are going to begin being blown by the angels and the judgment that will ensue on earth, this is the answer to the prayers of the saints. This is God carrying out his purposes for human history. This is God bringing history to that climactic moment after the trumpets and after the judgments when Christ himself will come and establish his kingdom. So the deterioration of the elements... Notice verse 6, the seven angels who had the seven trumpets, they prepared to blow. What's involved with these trumpets? Well, John tells us at least the first four here in this chapter. 
The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. These were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The imagery here is that of the seventh plague that God brought upon the Egyptians, according to Exodus chapter 9. Notice how that phrase burned up occurs in a single verse at least three times. So with this first trumpet judgment, you've got a storm of judgment that scorches a third of the earth or a portion of the earth. The idea is that it's partial. There'll be more judgment on the way. Verse 8, the second trumpet judgment involves God's judgment over the seas. If the first trumpet involves judgment over the earth, the second is judgment over the seas. The angel blew his trumpet. Verse 8, something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. A third of the ships were destroyed. So John sees something that can only be described in apocalyptic language. Something described as a mountain burning with fire cast into the sea. The sea is boiling. The sea is churning. The sea becomes blood. This too calls to mind the first of the plagues in Exodus where the waters of the Nile were turned to blood. John sees that it results in the devastation of marine life and maritime trade. If that's not enough, verse 10, the third trumpet involves God's judgment over the streams, fresh waters affected. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. It fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. That word Wormwood means bitter. It's mentioned eight times in the Old Testament it's always associated with poison, bitterness, death. So John sees that as a result of just this star falling from heaven, a third of the world's fresh water supply is affected. Again, this parallels the plagues in Exodus where the Egyptians' fresh water was tainted with blood. In many ways, what you see in the Exodus is just a microcosm of what's going to happen on a much larger scale at the end of history with the final end time judgment. Verse 12, you've got the fourth trumpet judgment. It involves God's judgment over the heavens. The fourth angel blew his trumpet. A third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. So here you've got the darkening of the celestial bodies that provide us with light as a third of them are darkened. I don't know of anything so terrifying as darkness. The darkness of the last days, in many ways, will be a fitting illustration of the way that the world has rejected the light of God. You reject God's light, God gives you darkness. God is the perfect gentleman. He'll give you what you want. Adrian Rogers said, from the beginning, men have hated the light. Now, these men will have their share of darkness. So here's the thing, when you consider what's being described here with these four trumpet judgments, somebody says, well, what is this that's being described? What is it that John sees? Uh, is this some type of nuclear holocaust that he sees? 
This mountain burning with fire, is, that, is this some kind of volcano like Vesuvius that destroyed Pompeii? Is this, is this some type of just nuclear meltdown? Is this some type of asteroid? Is this some type of... Which, by the way, isn't it interesting that so much of what the world is afraid of and what you hear so many people offer their ideas about and you know what may be on the horizon for the world and how the world needs to just kind of watch. There's all these comets and asteroids and all. And you have nothing to fear because they're four million miles away. I want to know who's doing all the counting. <laughs> Bottom line is what you see happening here is really just the unraveling of the created order. Remember when man gets out of step with God, nature gets out of step with man. That's a consequence of the fall. And so really what you just see here, whether there's descriptive language, symbolic language, literal language, take the scripture at face value. What's being described here is judgment that rocks man's world. Man cannot save himself from what's coming. You can send Bruce Willis to space all you want to to try to blow up this rock that's coming, but it's not going to work. Uh, you've seen those movies too, haven't you? And of course, that's not it. But you look, you look at verse 13. John says, I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. If you think the first four are serious, wait till you see the, set, the, the, the last three. If the first four involve judgments associated with the natural order, you'll notice that the last three trumpet judgments are associated with the supernatural order. Demons and that kind of thing that torment humanity. Here's the point, folks. <clears throat> Man hardens his heart. God intensifies his judgment. Man hardens his heart. God intensifies his judgment. You know, that's why Scripture says in Hebrews chapter 3, today, while there's still opportunity, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart as they did in the rebellion. Don't close off your heart. Don't close off your life and don't shut God out of your life. If he's speaking to you, if he's showing you some things that you need to surrender to him in your life while you have an opportunity, do business with God because the time is coming when that opportunity will be lost. You say, well, surely people will repent when stars begin to fall from the sky. And the seas begin to turn to blood. If you look over in chapter 9, verse 20, even after these trumpet judgments and even after things get worse, the scripture says the rest of mankind who weren't killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. They didn't give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which can't see, which can't hear, which can't walk. 
Neither did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Even as the created elements are coming unraveled around them, they choose sin. Oh, the depravity of the human heart. But oh, the goodness of God. Oh, the goodness of God. That's why we pray for those that are lost and we pray that God opens eyes and why we put all of our confidence in the power of the gospel to melt the heart of stone. So I give you these just as I close. This passage, for me, just practically, I think it reminds me of the value of prayer in my life. Then it's just a good reminder of just how important prayer is and that no matter whether my prayer receives an immediate answer or not, I know that my prayer is ascending to the throne of God. If it's in keeping with his will, in keeping with his purpose, it'll be answered in God's own time. But this passage ultimately reminds me of the vindication of God's people too. When you cry out, how long, O Lord? Know that that's going, that, that's going to receive an answer at some point when sin is going to be dealt with and righteousness is going to be ushered in forever and ever. But it reminds me also of the violence of the coming judgment. This is not something I want for anybody. I don't want this for my neighbor. I don't want this for my family. I don't want this for people that I love. I don't want this for people. I want them to come to know Jesus and be saved. And ultimately, these trumpet judgments ought to remind us of the final victory of the Lamb. He's a victorious Lamb. And you'll be glad to know him. Would you pray with me tonight? Lord, in Jesus' name, we're grateful for the privilege of prayer. Oh, Lord, that we would value it so much more in our lives. Lord, it's easy for us to become discouraged, Lord, with issues and pressures and the pain of loss. We live in a broken world that's rocking and reeling from the consequences of Adam's sin. But Lord, we know that the one who's seated on the throne is making all things new. And we long for that day, Lord. And right now, God, may we give ourselves to the task of rescuing as many people as we can, sharing the gospel, loving one another, prioritizing the kingdom, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And even so, come Lord Jesus is our prayer. And all God's people said together, amen. amen.